everyone, it's Chad, CEO of Mission and your host of Mission Daily. Today's guest is Gay Gaddis, the founder of T3. Gay joins us today to talk about being a pioneer in the world of marketing, the agency world, and all things creative. She is a creative legend that hails from Texas. Gay started T3 back in the day with $16,000 taken out of her IRA account. In today's episode, you'll hear about how she started from those humble beginnings and how she grew T3 and led it as CEO. You'll also hear about how she applied her arts background and familiarity with painting and generally just you know being a creative artist and took that to the alternative marketing and agency world and how she used that to build T3. We talk about the importance of being an early adopter, whether that is being an internet pioneer like T3 was, and how that gave Gay and her teams an edge working and landing a client like Dell. Our conversation also spans the future of marketing, original content, product placement, personal brands, new forms of media, and how campaign dollars will inevitably flow to the audience's eyes and ears. We're also going to cover how T3 was famous for delivering unexpected, big pitches to clients, often presenting solutions that they had no idea how to implement and then becoming legendary for figuring out how to pull them off later. Gay also talks about the business climate in Texas, and we get into some of the culture and laws which make it a great space to be involved in commerce. Today's episode is awesome. You're going to enjoy it. Let's jump into it. Let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, I know running a business is not easy. One of the biggest challenges is HR with all of its details and regulations. So I chose Trinet. Their experts make everything from payroll to benefits and even compliance easier. And they offer full service solutions tailored to your industry and your company, whether your team is 10 people or a thousand. For me, that means less worry and more confidence that it's taken care of the right way. You and your employees deserve the same. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Okay, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I was hoping we could do in round two here a bit of an expansion on our first interview. So I listed out some sample topics and questions, but I'm hoping you can take them in some new directions and really want to get a behind the scenes look at your career and maybe like a, a snapshot and deep dive also into the world of advertising. So if you're ready, let's jump into it. All right. So you started T3 with $16,000 and you grew it for 30 years. I'm sure that you've seen a lot in the space and you've been at the front lines of advertising and business the whole time. So throughout that time, where do you think the industry was when you started and where is it at now? And does it make you optimistic, pessimistic, or how are you feeling? Well, first of all, I have to laugh and say that the $16,000 <laughs> I started the business with was an IRA account I had. And that was all of the money I had at the time to put in the company. It, I was really broke. It was during a deep recession. And so that was an IRA. But I was laughing the other day because I was looking at my current retirement account and those $16,000 are still in those numbers <laughs> because I was able to pay it back without a penalty in 90 days. And so that was always a joke around the family. 
$16,000 in the investment. But yeah, things have changed a lot. And, you know, when I started the company, it was traditional advertising only. I mean, no one would have dreamed anything that the internet was going to do to shape the business or any business for that matter. And no one knew about it, really. It was, it was something going on with the government and no one knew what it was. So when I started the company, we were doing all traditional ads. I mean, it was radio ads, outdoor brochures, TV spots, print ads and, and newspaper ads and magazine work and traditional media placement and planning. So that was kind of the course that was set out. But we always did things that were a little different than what I would say the contemporaries of my time in the ad business were doing. And that's why we named T3 the think tank. It was T3 standing for the think tank because we looked at things and said, well, what can we do that's a little different? And we would do things like organize parades and have odd things that we thought would fit into a marketing program that weren't really traditional ads. And we would sell ourselves and say, if you go to an ad agency, an ad, if you come to the think tank, you're going to get a solution, a marketing plan and a solution. And sometimes those things would include ads of all sorts, but many times it was a little bit non-traditional. So we always did that. And when the day that the internet opened up to us, and, and that's kind of an interesting story how we got so involved in it, the world changed for us very quickly. And we embraced it before, again, most agencies did. And we were kind of thought of as, oh, well, they're those below the ad, the line ad people because they do direct marketing and internet stuff and all that. And more traditional agencies were out there doing, they still love the glory of the big expensive TV shoots and all of that. And right. we did too, but that was not really the direction that we wanted to go at one point. Yeah. It sounds like that principle of focusing on solutions has served you really well there. So what is the story of how you got involved in the internet and how it got under your radar? Well, we started working in 1992 in Austin, Texas with a little company called Dell. And I'm not kidding. They were a small startup company where well, they'd gotten off the ground, but small. And we had a small agency and we started working with them. And I'll never forget when I was in a meeting in the very early part of 1994 and Michael Dell walked in the room and there were about six people there. And he looked at all of us and he said, we're going to start selling on the internet because it perfectly fits our direct model. And if you understand the Dell marketing strategy, they went direct to consumer into business and they didn't go through resellers or middlemen or whatever, even retail, they sold direct. So yeah, the internet was perfect. We didn't understand how to make the magic of the internet work for them or for anybody, but we figured it out with hand in hand with Dell through those years in the 90s, we were developing some of the very first successful online marketing campaigns and marketing strategies and email programs that existed. So that was how we had our paying client who walked us through the door of the internet and we started experimenting and learning about it. So that was changed us forever. And would you say that working with Dell or some of the larger enterprises, was that the first time you felt like you had adequate budget for, you know, a real solutions oriented approach, because I know in the early days of any business, it's always challenging because you're trying to do a lot with a little and sometimes you don't have quite all the resources you need to execute on like a large vision. So, you know, at what point did you feel like you had the adequate resources to execute on your vision? Or did you always feel like you had it? 
Well, you know, we were fortunate because we started off with healthcare accounts and then we quickly diversified into one of the very first <laughs> cable companies that was selling cable television around the country. And so we really kind of got funded pretty early on the types of programs we wanted to do. I, I mean, it was never like we were just had a huge budgets, but we were not always strapping things together. We chose wisely and worked with companies that and institutions that could find their programs pretty well. Again, it wasn't like big money, but you're right. When the Dell business started to grow and we started mounting success on top of success, then more marketing dollars flowed our way and we scaled the business tremendously to uh, adapt to that. Because of Dell, again, we were doing things that most agencies were not even involved in yet. And so as some of these other Fortune 100 companies woke up one day and said, wow, we've got to start moving more of our dollars out of the traditional channels into the internet opportunities, then we were kind of there at the table and we ended up picking up a lot of business because of it. So it was all kind of, again, because of that early, early opportunity with Dell. And that taught me how to scale the business and add people and We added offices and it changed us, like I said, forever and gave us a platform to build on. Do you feel like branding the company, the think tank, helped you attract creative people? And I think, you know, creativity is something that we kind of take for granted that not everyone has it, right? It's something that is very hard to find, to nurture, develop, and to harness. So how did the company branding and your skills and leadership kind of help you attract creatives, which are so hard to find and wrangle? Yeah, they are. It's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, I started off as a creative in the business. I was a copywriter and an art director. So I understood where they were coming from. And I have an art degree. So I, I didn't come out of the business school or the marketing programs. And I've always had a, a real understanding for creative folks. And I wanted to provide a place where they could practice their craft. And I wanted them to have an interesting place to work where they were trying new things and experimenting with new things because creatives get bored very easily. And if you put them just on one thing, doing the same thing over and over, they won't last. And so that's why they bounce around a lot usually. But we always tried to provide, you know, opportunities for people to experiment in things and innovate and have opportunities outside of what they even believe they could do. And that helped us attract great people. And I, again, I understood them. I, I came from that background. So I wasn't always, if you want to call me the suit, <laughs> I wasn't just the business person. I mean, I, fortunately, I understood business and I understood how to run an agency, but I came from the spirit of a creative. Yeah, I think speaking the same language is so, so crucial when you're trying to build a culture or attract creatives. Well, the other thing I want to add to that is that, you know, Creatives would get very frustrated when you would go in a client meeting and everything had already been filtered and they only could present certain things and they kind of their creativity would be bridled back. And so I was always an advocate for, okay, let's go in there and let's just show, show them what you got, you know, and let's be on track and let's be on strategy, but let's show clients things they didn't ask for. Let's look for stuff that they've never done before. And time and time again, we would do that. And that would be the opportunity for a client to spread their wings and do what they wanted to do and really make a difference. And so that went back to our, my original mantra of what we were all about. And this still stands and it was kick-ass work for clients who want to kick-ass. And that attracted creative people because I said, look, we're not just, 
satisfied to do work that's the status quo. And we're not satisfied with clients who don't want to make a difference. So, you know, when you put in the part about for clients who want to kick ass, that was saying that, look, we want to surround ourselves with clients who are willing to take that chance and willing to do something that's never been done before. So that really created an environment around our clients and our staff that, hey, the sky's the limit. Let's do it. Are there any really wild pitches or ideas that maybe you were cringing about during the pitch, but, you know, strangely got accepted or any that fell flat on their face that you remember? Yeah. Oh, there's always those. But we didn't, you know, through the years, I can't remember that many times where we just bombed out. There were a couple of times. And then, then then that's when we realized that we were probably not with the right client. Exactly. That they weren't going to let us take wing. But, you know, there were there were a lot of times literally early on with Dell that we would go in and suggest things that we didn't know how to do it yet. And it's the best way to learn how to, uh, how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we came in and said, let's do this virtual reality of an office setting that shows people exactly how all this equipment plugs in and plays and does this. And so we created this and it was like a game and and no one had done that before and it was not an ad. And, you know, it was something that we just said, let's create this environment where your clients can poke around and customers and see what it's really like to use the Dell suite of uh, products. So, you know, things like that, we had never done it yet. I mean, so many times we came in with things we hadn't even done and we weren't even sure how we were going to do it. But then we said, hey, let's figure it out. And we would. And and it was exciting. Yeah, I think that's one of the hallmarks of creative teams is they're going to embrace those ideas because then they get to move into new uncharted territory, which is where real creatives want to be. So that's really cool. Yeah. And like I said, being a think tank, you know, we did things that weren't even ads. And you'd find sometimes that we would say, wow, we've tried radio, we've tried this, we've tried that, and it it wasn't successful. So what can we do? And, you know, we did man on the street kind of handing out stuff. And I mean, just guerrilla tactics and things that you would never have uh, even dreamed of if you were an ad agency, but just ways that we could get direct to a consumer and try to influence them. So we put, we did parking tickets on cars (laughs) one a restaurant and it wasn't really real parking tickets but it was a drink coupon and people would come out and get mad and think they had a parking ticket look just like one but actually it was a nice thing when they figured out what it was and so it's so good just stuff like that I mean you know I can go back there's thousands of stories like that but it was just like well maybe an ad's not going to work here let's do something else yeah and I think anytime you're giving a potential client or prospect that kind of like roller coaster of emotions that go from bad to good or, you know, give them a little bit of excitement, you're creating an experience. And that's something that they're going to remember. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Nobody likes ads, but everybody likes experiences. Exactly. So when you look out at the landscape today, there's a lot of tech companies that are producing original content. And so that could be, you know, whether it's podcasts or video originals on Netflix and Mm -hmm. HBO or their own originals or something in VR and AR. What do you think the future of marketing budgets is going to be? Is it going to be, you know, way more original content, interactive experiences? Is it going to be real world? Or do you think it's going to be like the same that it's always been, you know, just capital looking for ROI? What's the future look like in your your view? Well, you know, we first started seeing how branded content and product placement was starting to make a difference. And, you know, I'll never forget in some of the episodes of Sex in the City and you would see these branded products there or you'd see product placement and you go, I like that show. And Carrie Bradshaw is having that beverage or whatever. So it became 
a way to influence people. And that was kind of that first nod to all that that we that I saw. And you, know, you paid to be in there. So it wasn't sure. sincere necessarily. <laughs> Sometimes it was. And that's what made it even better when a, a celebrity or somebody really liked a product and they would promote it. But, and we even saw this recently, you know, we saw something where we were, I, I can't name the name, but we saw someone who liked a product that we were promoting and he actually had it out there. And so we were able to tag onto that and really help promote the product and, and he let us do it. But so for branded content and what that's, that's really exciting right now. I love original content coming from some other advertising background. I mean, everybody's trying to make money and there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you pay for everything, but there's some pretty exciting stuff going on. I mean, it's changing us forever. And, and, and what's great about it is you don't have some of the same barriers to entry that you used to have. It used to cost so much money to produce stuff. And it still does. Quality productions are quality productions or quality content. But a lot of people can get in on the act and start from almost nothing. But if they've got something compelling and they've got something interesting, then they can garner, you know, a huge audience. And, you know, I've seen it over and over recently where someone just got a point of view, they've got something interesting and all of a sudden they've got a million followers or they've got people who are excited about something that never before could have been funded. I mean, they they couldn't have come up with the money to do it. So that's all kind of like the wild west all of a sudden again, you know, you you could have anybody out there if they've got the right message and they've got an audience, then they got it. Yeah, the history of most great companies, I mean, they really get on the radar with one successful ad campaign or story or whatever. It really only takes one. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of been true since the early days of the internet. I think a lot of people, it might not be a popular view, but a lot of people think like, oh, opportunities dried up or it's just different now. And yeah, it really only takes one really good piece of creative to break out. So Exactly. So as a CEO, you're building the company in Texas. What's the business climate like when you're you're building it? Is it, you know, do you even notice it? Does it feel like it's it's kind of harsh, it's aggressive, or do you think it was like always a pretty welcoming place? I'm just curious to get your view on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Texas is a friendly place for business. And I didn't realize it at the time. It wasn't why I started the business in Austin. Of course, Austin was such a sleepy little town, which no one would believe today. But in 1989, there was not much going on in Austin. And honestly, Dell was my only local client. I mean, there was nothing else going on here. It was just a mom and pop town. And, you know, there were some outposts here from IBM and Motorola, but no headquarters were here. So you had the state government, you had the University of Texas, and that was about it. Overall, Texas, because of our no personal income tax and other favorable business environment, it's a good place to be. And that's why people come here. I'm the first woman to be the chairman of the Texas Business Leadership Council. And we were formerly the Governor's Business Council, but changed our name to reflect a larger business scope. And we work to make Texas a great place to do business. And that is everything from transportation, education, tax structure, healthcare, all the things that create an environment where a business can thrive. And it's everything from small business up to your, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that are here. And so it's, it's a real passion of mine to make sure that Texas stays competitive. And we want to be globally competitive. That's the whole goal. And you think about Texas as an entity, it's, we'd be the 10th largest country in the world. So it's a really important state for many reasons. And everyone looks to us as to, all right, how's it done there? And we have to keep it competitive. And we've got to keep it in a place where 
people can do business here and grow and thrive. We want to take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. When you're growing your business, you'll need to solve all kinds of HR challenges and you'll need Trinet. Trinet gives you expert advice on HR compliance, attracting top talent, and how to efficiently outsource your HR. Get started now by checking out Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide to learn more about how to tackle these issues. Now, let's jump back into today's episode. Yeah, and I think that's a question, you know, coming from California where we're based now, there's a bit of an exodus going on, a lot of people talking. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future, see if California remains competitive or if that uh, exodus continues to Texas. So, well, the tax structure in, in California on many levels is, is becoming extremely onerous. And I, it is. you know, I have to tell you, it's just, I had an office out there and it's one of the reasons why I'm glad I'm out of it because the taxes we had to pay just to do business in California was just, didn't make sense, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And if you look around and you walk around and you start seeing what's happening all over Texas, there are people from California and really a lot of other places that are coming here in droves. That's why we're experiencing so much growth. It's astounding. Yeah, it definitely, uh, definitely is. So, so when are you going to get here? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up, but I mean, we've been kicking around the idea for a while and definitely we'll have an outpost out here, but mm-hmm. it's to be determined at this point. My mom's family is right. from Texas and already a big fan. So, oh, okay. Gay, when you, we're really starting to experience some sizable growth for T3. What were some of your biggest challenges? Like, did you have any dark night of the soul type moments? Did you have any experiences where, you know, you didn't know if the business was going to be able to go on? What were the lows like? Well, the biggest lows were always when the economy went tanking down. So I went through a few recessions and they were really, really difficult because what happened during those times is that, we had a pretty good relationship with our clients always, by and large. But what would happen is their budgets would get cut. They had layoffs. And so it just trickled down to us. And when you look at what gets cut first in a bad economy, it's usually marketing and advertising dollars because, you right. know, they'll keep the lights on for other stuff, but that becomes the first thing on the chopping block. So ad agencies, marketing people, companies like ours were always at high risk in a down economy. And so it was, really rough. And, you know, I, I did some pretty few times, you know, a lot for us. We had to cut things. I mean, we cut our budgets as deep as we could and, you know, just to keep it going. But the good thing was because I control the company hundred percent and I never had to answer to anyone, but our clients, I could make the decisions I needed to. And I, I think the hallmark of my success through the years was being able to make quick decisions when I had to, and they weren't always pretty decisions and they didn't always look fair, but they kept the mothership alive, so to speak. And so we did some pretty harsh things, you know, to try to make it, but we somehow made it through every time. And I never borrowed a dime to run the business. It was always bootstrapped hundred percent, even through the growth. That's pretty remarkable. Now I look back on it, but that, yeah, that was, really is. Yeah, it is. But I always knew that I wasn't beholden to anybody and I could just make the decisions I needed to without, a bank or a lender or an investment firm or anybody coming in and saying, well, you can't do that. So I, I just did what I needed to do and we just marched on. 
Yeah, I think with structuring a creative company or whether it's an original content studio or story studio, whatever you want to call it, you know, any type of involvement from outside parties like slowly dilutes the creativity. I mean, I've, I've noticed that, you know, we've experimented with a couple different strategies, but the more editors you have in the kitchen and the more the business stuff becomes and the finances become paramount, especially in the minds of others, it's really hard to you know, to have freedom of speech, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that's interesting that you were able to protect that so much, which as an advertising company, you know, you have to be free to speak for sure. So, yeah. And then we did good things too. So you talk about the downtimes and yeah, there were some tough decisions and some, you know, cuts and pay, cuts and staff, cuts and budgets and all the different things we had to do. But then when we did well, we shared, you know, and we helped our, staff in many ways and we put in programs and and things like my t3 and under program we would staff ahead of them sometimes we would invest our own money or i invested my money and great people even before clients were asking you know i always put money back in the company i plowed money back into it every time i could and because i knew that that was something i could control and once i invested in other things but my biggest investment was my own company because i knew At the end of the day, I could make the call on it. And when it came to structuring clients' contracts, I'm curious, did you try to focus on like quarterly contracts, you know, on a campaign basis or annual contracts? How'd you try to do it? Well, yeah, from almost the beginning, and we learned this from Dell. I mean, thank goodness we got to cut our teeth with some pretty sharp procurement people there. And, you know, most people in my industry, just cringed at the thought of having to deal with anyone in procurement. But we learned early on how to do it. And it actually was good. And so I always had a very candid and good relationship with the procurement side of of all the big companies we work with and the legal side too. And so if you're going to go through a master services agreement, that's what we call them, MSAs with these big companies, there's no way I would have done it. We tried to structure the relationships. And that didn't mean that you can couldn't come back in and make amendments or updates or whatever, because as technology continued to change and improve, it changed our role with those companies too. And some of the security issues and some of the things that we had to deal with. So our deal was let's put in a three-year MSA. That was always a goal. I would never do one on a quarterly basis. It's too much work. It really and, is. And yeah, so, we, we learned, learned the hard way. There. Well, and you know, it, so but early, early on, you know, I would try to do even I always did one-year relationships with my early clients. And occasionally to get some work at a big company, you might just do a scope of work and sign off on one project just to get your foot in the door. But as soon as the foot was in the door, we started, we went right into sending in our MSA. And I hired some of the best attorneys in the business. And we ended up with some of the best contracts in the business because of it. And our clients told us that. Sometimes we were tough to deal with. They couldn't believe this little lady in Austin, Texas would send back their contracts with red lines all over them. So I said, well, I'm telling you right now, we understand what we're doing. And if we don't structure it this way, you're not protected and we aren't because of the technology teeth we had in these companies. So I was always really proud of the contracts we put together and the relationships we had on them. And, you know, you have to rely on those someday. Sometimes what's in those contracts really come back and you live by them. And they provide those guide ropes and guidelines that really protect both parties. Yeah, that's such good advice. So our, uh, my good friend structure, he's our, he's worked in M&A law and entertainment law, and he created this 
elaborate, hyper-detailed MSA. And I can remember a couple of people just giving him a very hard time about that. But okay. the thoroughness of it was, I think it's something that we'll appreciate in later years, let's just say. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, excellent advice. Well, I'll just say, if you can, anywhere you want to splurge on, hire the best legal advice you can, because it comes back to make a big difference. Yes. So yes, I, I've does. spent a lot more on legal than I would have ever dreamed, but it sure did help some great Yeah, definitely. It's kind of the foundation of things for sure. Mm-hmm. So Gay, when you look out at the market for streaming, whether that's podcasts, video shows, I think there's a, an interesting transition that could happen now because when it comes to radio ads, there's about $17 billion spent annually. When it comes to TV ads, it's somewhere around $77 billion. And meanwhile, while podcast and video streaming is still a pretty nascent market when it comes to advertising dollars. So mm-hmm. do you think we're going to see a lot of the radio and TV ad dollars flow into these newer mediums or these new avenues here? It all goes to where are the eyeballs and the ears. And advertisers, marketing people will follow the audience. And if the audience starts migrating more and more into some of these other mediums and other things, that's where the money's going. It's always followed like that. No one believed at the beginning of the internet, like I said, that there would be action. But as more and more people were using online services and online buying and all those things, the money started falling there. And we watched already tremendous amount of dollars moved from traditional advertising over there and it's continued to do that so as you have more intrusion it's not going to be just let's say okay podcasts are going to get the money it's because if there are millions of listeners to something that's where the money is going to go if it's the audience that you want and now it's interesting because we can be so much more segmented with these audiences and you know you blast a radio ad out there you kind of know who's listening because it's that venue or that type of programming kind of the same thing with television you know you know who probably is watching that type of show or whatever but with some of these other opportunities i mean it's it gets much more granular with your audience and why would they be listening to that what are those people like what are they doing what are their habits and we know so much more about them so it's always the money always follows the audience and the more we know about the audience, the more sophisticated we get. So I have no idea what could be next. It's, it's all about where are the people going, you know, and right. they're not reading newspapers as much anymore. So what's going on with that? Well, if the content's good at the Wall Street Journal, then I may still be viewing that content. But not many people want to pick up a real newspaper anymore. So look what happened to them. Same thing with magazines are just dwindling. So right. it's always where's the audience? And that's where the money goes. Definitely. Yeah. And some of these newer platforms too, with sensors and analytics, you can tell if the audience is engaged or if they're passively Mm -hmm. consuming something. So yeah, it's an exciting time for sure. I think there's going to be major transitions. Uh, When it comes to virtual reality and augmented reality, I think, you know, you were a T3, a pioneer in the space early on with some of the work that you mentioned with Mm -hmm. Dell. I'm curious, are there any other campaigns you did in this in those mediums? And what do you think about them? Well, I have to be careful about what I talk about. But yeah, I mean, I think just being able to, and I won't name the client, but being able to envision what a room looks like when it's painted with this chip of paint, or how do I use those technologies to give me an experience so that I can have a better path to purchase. And that's how we used it. I mean, it was like, okay, if this 
helped explain something or gave someone this opportunity to see something in a life they never would or give them a chance to try something out, then it's cool. So we've done that, you know, and, and I think it'll continue to have some. You know, we did a really fun thing. It was an experiment for the skydiving deal where it's a deal in Austin and we just did it for fun. But it's like we put these goggles on these people and they were jumping into like it's a skydiving experience. And all of a sudden, because of the goggles, like if they could be jumping off anywhere and you would have this experience, like you might've been jumping out of the Swiss Alps or something. And so it was really blew people's mind when they did that, but it's just anything like that, that changes an experience and makes it more interesting. You know, that that's where it can go. So it's kind of, whatever creativity comes into play here that could could use those things to help a consumer to a path to purchase or enhance an experience or, or whatever. Sure. And if you think about your career and kind of what you've learned in advertising, do you feel like you've learned, I mean, there, there have to be a lot of them, but do you, have you known any secrets? Have you found anything where you'll try to share it and people just, they won't appreciate it, like the magnitude of the wisdom or, you know, do you have anything like that that you feel is like such precious knowledge that just nobody appreciates fully? You know, I'm always surprised about one thing and that is, and I've just did a video series for the University of Texas and their communication school, but it's going to be open to the public. It'll be on YouTube. But one of the things I talk about that I've tried to advise some of the students coming out and anybody who's in any business really is that I have this thing in my but cowgirl power. And it's, a, I could write a whole book on it. It's called that, know the money. And I tell them that if you're going to be effective in any role, you have to understand how the company you work for really makes money and how they survive and how they compete. And then if you're on the advertising side, if you work, you know, we're all working with clients. If you have a viable business, you've got clients. So how do they make money? How do they compete? What's in their annual report? What's in their earnings reports? How do they see the future. Are they going to make it or not? Are they going to be valid in six months? So you've got to really understand the finances around all this. And sometimes I think people say, well, I just work for this company and let them figure it out. Well, that's not how it should work. You, if you're really going to be valuable, you've got to get your head around the money. And it's yeah. the best advice I can tell anybody. You, could, you know, I always said, take the CFO to lunch, get to know what's going on, understand your client's competitive environment. And look at what has worked and what hasn't and how some companies have just gone the way of the dodo bird because they weren't valid anymore. And I always said, if you're a creative and you can show up at a client meeting and you're not just sitting there with your ideas and stuff, but you're really asking questions about what does the stock look like right now? What's the shareholder value on this? And what are we doing to change the sales talk like that? Then you become really a valuable player at the table and not just the creative sitting there. Right. Yeah. That's something that the second you start offering that type of perspective is the second you really respect them because you're, you know, you're on the same team, you're extending a hand saying like, I know what matters at the end of the day and let's get that solved first before we get into crazy idea territory. So, yeah. And for me personally, I mean, you know, I understood exactly how we made money from the get go and I was never in the dark on it. I always understood it and I watched my numbers like a hawk. I could tell you every percentage, everything that was going on, what we had to do to turn this, what we had to do to do that. And it was, it's just, you've got to know it. And the minute you take your eye off the ball, you're not in charge anymore. Right. 
And when it comes to working with other people, whether they were mentors or clients or folks that you read and learned from in the space, what was the, some of the best business advice that you've ever received? I just have to laugh. Many years ago, and I have to tell you, this is funny. I've gotten a lot of good business advice and I've given a lot of it, but uh, I have to laugh at this one thing. So I was on the board of directors of the Salvation Army long, long ago. It was one of my first boards to join. And I've I advise people to join boards, be it nonprofit or whatever, and it leads to other things. And it helps you with your own business when you have to think about someone else's like that. But he leaned over to me one day and he said, how are things going, Gay, with that new company you got? And I said, well, we're doing all right. I mean, for a startup, we're doing pretty good. And he said, well, you know, if any given day, if you don't have about 25% of the people mad at you, you ain't doing business. And I laughed because... <laughs> No, it's a funny thing. It's an old Texas guy. and But that's really true because if you always worry about who you've alienated, who you made mad, if you stepped on a toe here or there, or you tried something new, or you, you know, broke out and were a little avant-garde, someone isn't kind of mad about it, then you probably aren't doing anything. And I don't mean mad like you've done something really wrong, but I wasn't afraid to just jump out there sometimes and say that way. Yeah. And, you know, when I started my T3 and under program, my attorney told me not to do it. And I said, I'm doing it anyway. And that was where I let moms and dads bring their babies to work. And he said, you're not a licensed daycare. I said, I don't care. We're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. So those are kinds of things that, you know, you kind of sometimes just have to take a stand on. And maybe you make some people mad or maybe you're not doing what the, the status quo is. And that's okay. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love anytime somebody says uh, business or <laughs> love that. So when you were thinking about your time for your family and your personal life, it's really hard sometimes because the, you know, the overlap and things just get intertwined. How did you go about constructing boundaries there? Or what's your philosophy when it comes to that? For me, there were absolutely no boundaries. It was all one thing. Everything I've ever done has been inextricably linked from the time I started the company. So the kids knew what was going on. They were a part of it. My husband's a fifth generation rancher that all blended into it. We brought people from T3 out to our ranch. It became part of our, our brand and our life. And so nothing to me was compartmentalized. It was all one. It was called life. And my life yeah. just bleeds from here to there to there to there. And, and all the things have to fit in somehow. So, you know, I, I never did. So we're going to cut this off. And, and I tell people, you know, you tell your kids about what's going on at the office. You know, when you come home, explain it to them. And they need to obviously tell you about what's going on in their life. But we always included our children and the good, the bad, and the ugly of what was going on. And they didn't know everything, but they certainly got a real sense of, the good things and when we won awards or we got new clients or, you know, someday when we lost business or when something didn't go well or we had an obstacle for whatever reason or the economy was bad. Or I remember when interest rates were almost 15%. I mean, that's wow. how crazy it was. And now who would believe that? But, you know, you had to explain all this stuff to your kids, like the, the economic environment we're in. And so I never separated any of it. I still don't. Very cool. And when it comes to future projects or things you're working on right now that are exciting, what's most exciting? Is it the ranch? Is it the creative center there? Your work at the University of Texas? What really keeps you going these days? Well, again, it's all inextricably linked and it all works together. One of the things though that I am, well, besides the fact that it's so rewarding for me to be able to go back to my original roots as a fine artist. I mean, I was trained in 
college. I was, went to University of Texas and I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art. I've sold over 90 paintings now. And for me to be able to go back and Congrats. really awesome. do well with my art and be a player there is beyond gratifying and I love it and I enjoy it and I will continue to do that for the rest of my life uh, as long as I have hands and eyes that I can do it but the thing that I'm getting really excited about is you know after I wrote my book Cowgirl Power and it still has a lot of traction it's evergreen it became really apparent to me that we were missing the pipeline a little bit and so I've been doing research and I'm still in the in the beginning throes of some pretty intense research on what are we going to do for the eight to 12 year old girls? That's where we're starting to see that some of them fall out of their STEM programs. They fall out of some compass. They have issues going on at that time in their life where they may lose their competitive edge and may not want to do some of the things that they could do to change the course of their life forever. So I'm in the process of, it's going to be a, probably a book, but it's also kind of a program and a movement around what are we going to do to work with those kids and give them options in their life because I'm not a person who says, oh, you have to go, you know, be the top of a corporate thing or you've got to be an entrepreneur. You've got to be this or that. I just want men and women, boys and girls to have options in their life. And if you don't do certain things and take certain courses of action, you start closing the doors and windows in your life. So I just want to educate and help, especially these girls, because I'm a woman and I've been champion of women in, in business for a long time, but stop them right there, that eight to 12 year old track and say, what are you going to do to make sure you have options? So when you are going to college or you are maybe getting your first job or you are starting a family, what are the things that you want to make sure in your utility belt that will allow you to be the best that you can be and have those options? So that's where I'm going to focus some energy right now. I'm very excited about what we're finding there and getting partnerships and people who want to join in on this effort. So that's a big push right now for me. It's really important work. And yeah, we'll be cheering you on. It's, I think it's a critical time and age. And the more options that kids know they have, the more free they'll be in the future to make better choices. That's exciting. So Gay, final thoughts here at the end of round two. A lot of business listeners, a lot of technical people, executives, founders, owners of businesses that follow the show. Any final thoughts for them or words of encouragement or maybe even caution? Uh, yeah, well, we'll say everybody's been saying we're about to have a recession and things are about to go south. If they do, always be prepared for that. It's always around the corner and we love to ride the high bubble and it sure is fun. And I never throttle myself back then. I would go, I, you know, I didn't say, oh, we're about to have a doomsday, so we can't do this. So be prepared when it does happen. What are your strategies to survive? And it can be on a personal level, it can be in a business sense or whatever. But that's why I always say there's no the money thing. Because if you are a part of any organization that you're involved in, I don't care if it's nonprofit, profit, technology oriented, whatever, and you are part of the long-term money-making strategy, you have more options, you have more negotiating power, and you have more surviving power. And I've seen this over and over. I went through this terrible recession, like I said, when I started my company, but I was in another company before I started, and I would have never been on the chopping block if they cut it down to the last three because I made a lot of money for them, and I knew it. And so you, you just need to put yourself in a position of strength. So whenever the downturns come or whatever, you are a part of the solution. And it will change your outcome tremendously. But be thinking of that now because 
some things will change. We all know that, that you don't ride along and it's just comfortable in the same place all the time. We just inevitable. So be prepared for that and don't be afraid of it. Wise words. Thank you so much for joining us and to everyone listening. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Always a pleasure. As a small business owner in ultra competitive Silicon Valley, I used to worry about losing my top talent. I don't anymore. And here's why. I figured out how to offer access to robust benefits like a big company does, but I couldn't do it all on my own. That's where Trinet came in. Trinet helps tens of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses across the U.S. with HR. And they provide you with top-notch industry-tailored service for your HR needs. If you're building a business, you know you need a great team. Trinet is your team for HR. And when you choose Trinet, you'll help support independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.